Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with more than 10 years of experience. And this is Trisha, and guess what this episode is, Courtney? I believe this is episode 50. It is. Woohoo! I mean, if we don't count our little intro episode, which that I doesn't don't. doesn't count. Yeah, it just like it shows up as an episode, but it's not. So yes, this is our 50th episode. That's crazy. It's almost been a year. We've only missed one week. Right. And um, yeah, who knew? Yeah. I wasn't sure how long this would go for. <laughs> I wasn't either because I'm really bad at sticking with hobbies. I am as well because I'll get bored of them. Right. Really exactly. quickly and then move on to something new. So mm-hmm. yeah, we, um, we've done it, everybody. And we are doing our 50th episode, um, I think, on a good note. A Kemper part four, final part. Yeah, finishing it up. Yep. So, yay. Go us. Yay. Um, all right, now that we've patted ourselves sufficiently on the back, it's my question. Yes, it is. And, Courtney, do you believe in ghosts? I do not believe in ghosts. Okay, um, tell me a little bit about why you do not. Well... I'd say I'm pretty pragmatic. Ooh, be careful. Be careful. And don't really believe in any sort of afterlife, okay. if that makes sense. Okay. So to me, there being a ghost doesn't fit in with any of that either. Okay. But I know other people have had experiences that I have not had, and I respect that other people have different opinions than I do. I lived in what I felt like was a haunted house. Um, when I was just graduated high school with a lot of my friends that lived there too, and we all had experiences. And then when we left, we knew the people that moved in afterwards and they too had experiences that were similar to ours. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't know for sure, but I am definitely open to the possibility that there are, are ghosts or spirits or paranormal phenomena, if you will. And, in the words of like Fox Mulder, I want to believe. That's really cool. I mean, I don't know. It can be really scary, you know, regardless of what something may be. Some people definitely get freaked out by stuff that happens in their house, even if there is a non paranormal explanation. Right. That right. really sucks. It for does. Those people. So, anyways, that was my question. Just one more way that we're a little bit different, but we can, um, acknowledge each other's beliefs and be open to them right exactly yes if only the rest of the world could be as civilized as us too it would be a much better place i think so i think so okay so with that can you give us a recap of just a whatever you want to go over before i go back into this sure yeah so last three episodes learning about big ed kemper we learned that he had a pretty messed up childhood where he was pretty outcast and ridiculed most of his life and started doing some real creepy things from a pretty young age, then eventually murdered his grandparents at 15, went to the state hospital, came out, kept his nose clean for just a little hot second, and then started killing co-eds. Right. And, um... When we ended last time, that was pretty much the end of his killing his co-ed's time. So here we go. 
So we're coming to the end of Ed's reign of terror, but he does go out with the big bang. One day, the police come to Ed's place and they take his 44 Magnum from him. This is just sort of an aside to kind of tell you where we're going here. Um, but I'm not sure what the complaint was um, or if they were able to legally confiscate the weapon, but Ed was sure that it was his mother who called the cops on him. So um, this is just to say that Ed and his mom still fought all the time. Neighbors would later talk about how they could hear them arguing through the walls. Quote, I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother, and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and me doing these things. She insisted on it, and over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was whether I should have my teeth cleaned. So this was just an example of what he was saying. They would always fight over, like, you know, viciously, but it was always over stupid stuff. So, Courtney, what do you think that Clarnell's motivation was for constantly picking fights with her son? Do you think she got some sort of weird joy out of it? I doubt that it was intentional in that way. Um, but one factor to consider is the idea of um, homeostasis, so which is the tendency of a system to try and keep things the same because it kind of feels normal and comfortable to the system. It's what the system knows. Um, and this is seen really often in dysfunctional families that um, they just get so used to things being dysfunctional that they act unconsciously to keep it that way. So the relationship between Ed and his mother had always been contentious and full of conflict. And so unconsciously, they both likely contributed to making this just sort of stay the same. Hmm. And then additionally, right, add on that Clarnell is suspected of having borderline personality disorder. Um, and that comes with things like intense anger and um, relational conflicts. Interesting. So like if we go with the homeostasis status quo situation, it's like this is how – um, in a way they've always been and it's it's got a weird comfort in it so to keep that chemistry going she'll pick fights with him basically yes weird but I can see it I mean right. <laughs> how messed up people are we know this so Ed would blame his mother for his killings quote the only time people got killed was when she and I were fighting like cats and dogs I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't vent in any other way. I think they were surrogates. I was killing her, not them. I was attacking her station. I was attacking her stance in that university setting. At this time, Ed was getting more and more paranoid that the police were closing in on him. He was even like developing ulcers over the stress. The truth was, though, that the police were nowhere near linking Ed to the slayings. This paranoia and maybe some sort of guilt or something was really working its trick on Ed. He picked up a duo of co-eds that he planned on killing, but something got in his way and he just couldn't do it. He was very flustered and nervous and basically made them very nervous, but he was actually telling them the truth when he told them that he was taking them to their dorm. Um, but he was acting all sketchy because it was just like he was freaking out over what he wanted to do, but then he couldn't do it. Anyhow, I think that's when he had the epiphany. Quote, wow, it was uncanny. I said, wow, this has got to stop. I would have gotten away with those two being murdered. No, it's got to stop. I let them out. They never even knew what was going on. I don't think to this day they knew how close they came. Courtney, I do wonder if these two ever did realize that Ed gave them a ride. You know, if he gave as many rides as he said he did and with how big he was, there may be a whole bunch of people out there who never realized they took a ride from a serial killer evil genius. Yeah, I can't imagine that with the media coverage around his arrest and everything else that's come out about Ed since then that people didn't put it together at some point. Right. 
In the early uh, morning hours of April 21st, 1973, Ed had had it. He had brought his mom an Easter lily the night before, but she wasn't home. She was at a party, so he waited up for her. Then he took a nap. She still wasn't home. Got up, drank some beers, took another nap, woke up around 4 a.m. and found his mom reading in bed. When she saw Ed, she said, quote, I suppose you want to sit up all all night and talk now. This really hurt Ed's feelings, and he declined, and he left the room. He went to his room and stewed on all that had just transpired. His rage was building. His emotions were boiling. He got up and went to the kitchen where he grabbed a claw hammer and a knife. He went to Clarnell's room and started to beat in her skull, after which he cut off her head. Quote, what was good for my victims is good for my mother. He then took her head and put it on a shelf where he yelled at it for a good long time. Then he threw darts at it and then smashed it up some more. Ed also cut out her vocal cords and tongue, and he attempted to put them in the garbage disposal, but that didn't work out too well. They shot back out at him. Uh, He said he laughed a little at this because it was fitting that his mother would get the last word even in death, but he wasn't done. He then undressed her and proceeded to have sex with her headless corpse, and then he had sex with her head. Courtney? Well, Sigmund Freud probably would have something to say about Ed having an Oedipal complex, you know, which suggested that all boys have a kind of sexual attraction and love towards their mothers. Um, but, but I'm not a Freudian believer, so I believe that Ed just kind of finally allowed himself to express all the rage he had pent up towards his mother since he was a young child. You know, he'd admitted that he had fantasized about killing his mother for many years, and then cutting out her tongue and vocal cords was likely symbolic of finally silencing her so that she could no longer belittle him. And as for the sexual acts with her body, I think it is important to realize that they were not actually about sex or sexual attraction. They're about control and possession. Ed said this regarding why he violated his mother's corpse. Quote, I came out of my mother's vagina and in rage I went back in. He also stated, quote, I still love my mother. It's hard for somebody to understand that you murder your mother through love. It isn't a rational process. It's a very painful process. I've got to still live with that. Courtney? Now, a lot of people say that the opposite of love is hate, but really the opposite of love is indifference. It's not caring at all. You know, people don't generally get angry about things that just don't matter to them. So in a way, there must be love in order to have rage. Soon after he was finished violating his mother, his mother's corpse, he decided to call her friend Sarah, well, she goes by Sally, Hallett, and she was 59 years old, and he told her that he was going to take both of them out for dinner and for her to come on over, and I guess she got really excited by this, got all dressed up, and headed over to the Kemper's place. So she got there about 7.30 p.m., and Ed said his mom was running late and to just come on in. Now, Sally had been out with his mom at the party the night before, and she said to Ed, quote, Let's sit down. I'm dead. She did not know how right she was. So he punched her in the stomach, and I'm sure, you know, he's 6'9", 280, that it knocked the wind out of her, turned her around, apparently so he didn't have to look at her face. Quote, I came up behind her and crooked my arm around her neck. I squeezed and just lifted her off the floor. She just hung there, and for a moment I didn't realize she was dead. I had broken her neck and her head was just wobbling around with the bones of her neck disconnected in the skin sack of her neck. Ed claims to have had an orgasm while breaking her neck. After he laid her down and made sure she was dead, 
he headed over to the jury room, which is the bar that he goes to sometimes to hang out with cops, to have himself a beverage. When he got back home, he was exhausted, and he went to sleep in his mother's blood-soaked bed. When he woke up, he had sex with Sally's body as well. Courtney, why do you think Ed did this to his mother's friend? The author speculates that perhaps somehow with two dead, it would point the cops away from Ed, you know, give him some sort of an alibi. Do you have any ideas? I wonder if a possible motivation could be sort of a different twisted way of trying to avoid being caught. You know, Sally was very present in Clarnell's life. They were best friends. And Ed may have thought that she was the most likely person to find Clarnell's body and point the authorities towards him. Interesting. There was a part in the book where, you know, because Ed goes back and forth on a lot of these stories, and one of them he does say that he was very upset with Sally because she did something that hurt his mom very badly, but don't know. Right. So when Ed came back down to earth, he realized what he had done. He stole Sally's car and packed some guns and headed out of town going east. Before he left the scene, he did leave an odd note for the police when they found the bodies, and it wrote, or it said, not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. Got things to do. Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, no pain, the way I wanted it. Courtney, I saw this note online. Part of it's like in cursive, part of it's in print, part of it's like capitals, others not. It's really odd. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's actually really interesting to me. I went and looked up the letter as well so I could look at the handwriting. And I think it really speaks to Ed's frazzled state of mind at that time. You know, having mixed emotions about what he'd just done and struggling to kind of sort out his thoughts. And the change in writing style is particularly interesting to think about. So to me, the switch from cursive to print represents kind of a shift in persona of who's writing. You know, with the cursive being sort of like the adult Ed, who's a confident killer, and the print being the more childlike Ed, who is maybe scared and angry and confused. You don't think there's any part in there that's a, a second personality coming out, do you? No. Okay. Just a little regression, which yeah. we all have a tendency to do sometimes. <laughs> okay. While on the run, he decided to ditch Sally's car, and in Reno, he left it at a gas station. You know, he claimed that it wasn't working, and he left it there. He then rented an Impala and kept going. He drove for 18 hours straight and went over 1,000 miles in that stretch. He was hyped up on coffee and no-dose. In Colorado, he was pulled over for speeding. But, you know, he charmed his way out of that or whatever. They didn't search his vehicle, and his arsenal of weapons was not found. He eventually stopped in Pueblo, Colorado to assess the situation. At this point, he was probably almost delirious um, just from lack of sleep and all the caffeine and nodos he had been taking. And he found a phone booth and called the cops back home and confessed to killing his mom and her friend and to be, you know, being the now named co-ed killer. The officer on the other line was like a graveyard shift employee and he didn't buy it, thought it was a crank call and, you know, hung up on him. Courtney, what do you think about Ed trying to turn himself in? He was smart enough to probably have kept going and going and going and could have started a new life elsewhere. I mean, perhaps he would have gotten away with it, but perhaps his intelligence also made him realize that this was a slim possibility and that a life on the run would be very difficult to maintain. I mean, it's, it's hard to blend in when you're almost seven feet tall. It should also, you know, be noted that Ed did seem to have some ambivalence about continuing to rape and kill women. Um, And he recognized that 
um, the time that he had functioned the best in his life was in the controlled environment of a state hospital. So his self-awareness and understanding of psychology, you know, could have led to him realizing that being locked up really was the best place for him to be. Well, and I wonder if his... If what is true, he claims he killed because he'd fight with his mother. His mother's gone now. There's not those fights anymore. The motivation to kill would have been even less than it was if there was no trigger. I don't know. So maybe he knew that on some level and was like, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. So might as well just get this over with. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Only Ed can know what was going on in his mind. Right. I mean, he blames his mom for triggering his killing spree, but who knows? That could have been, you know, he would have done it regardless if his mom pissed him off or not that day. So Ed kept calling back and kept getting shut shut down. Uh, perhaps at this time, the police were getting all sorts of bad tips or something, so they just weren't taking him seriously. Ed even asked for the lead investigator by name, and he told the dispatcher, call him at home, wake him up, I am the co-ed killer. But still, not taken seriously. <clears throat> Ed, excuse me. <clears throat> Ed waited a couple more hours, then tried again. Again, he was hung up on. And by this point, he was running out of nickels to make these phone calls. Quote, the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. And that was his reasoning for, you know, churning himself in, I guess. Uh, eventually, Ed finally got through to someone who did believe him. But as luck would have it, Ed, like I said, was running out of nickels to make a long-distance phone call, and the lines got disconnected or were cut or whatever. And um, the cops were like, no, we actually think we have this guy, and now his phone's been disconnected, and hoping that he would call back. And he, like, did. He had, like, one nickel left. He called back, told them where they were or where he was, told them to go check his mom's house. We'd find bodies, blah, blah, blah. So police uh, in Santa Cruz were dispatched to his mother's dwelling to investigate what Ed had told them. And apparently when they entered the dwelling, they could smell the, the decomposition right away. There was patches of hair and blood all over the place. His mother's bed was soaked with blood all the way through to the springs, and the murder weapons were right there in the open. The police found the putrefaction scent to the closet and found both of the bodies crammed inside. Courtney, have you ever smelt decaying flesh before? I mean... Not human, but I've definitely come across like a dead animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did on a hike once and I was, I smelled it before I saw it and I was like, what is that? And then I saw it and I, I didn't think it was a mannequin, but I, for a minute I crossed my mind that it could be a body, but it was a deer. It probably been there like three days. It was awful. So yeah. It's pretty horrifying. Yeah. And I think that if I smelled it again, I would instantly remember that was the smell of the, the flesh. So anyhow, um, so then they found the note that Ed left, that weird note we just talked about. Apparently a first for these cops. You know, criminals don't typically leave apology notes for cops about the mess they left behind or a reason why they did it. The police were shocked by all of this and that it was done by Ed. I mean, they knew Ed or, you know, they thought they knew Ed. They considered him a gentle giant that liked to hang out at the cop bars and, you know, kind of live vicariously through them. They thought he looked up to them. You know, we've heard Ed say that he didn't, but, you know, that's a good manipulator right there. Meanwhile, the local Pueblo police were dispatched to Ed's location and cautiously took the giant man into custody. Apparently, he was so sleep-deprived and, like, high on the no-dos that he just spilled his guts. He confessed to all his crimes. And I bet he just sounded like a raving lunatic, a terrifying raving lunatic. But, you know, that's kind of what he was. 
It took a few days, but eventually they got Ed back to Santa Cruz. On his way back, Ed displayed a weakness that was somewhat interesting. Apparently, when they passed two female passengers in a car, Ed had a peculiar reaction. He violently vomited. He has or had a variation of emotiophobia. Per the author, quote, the sight of the women apparently thrust into Ed into, excuse me, quote, the sight of the women apparently thrust Ed into his monster kill mode, which triggered a wave of anxiety so strong that it was as if a swarm of butterflies had literally been placed in his stomach. Courtney, what do you think about this? I think that this was likely a trauma response. You know, the past 48 hours had likely been very emotionally and physically distressing for Ed, and his mental state was pretty fragile at this time. So then having a sudden influx of anxiety or fear, like what was described, you know, could easily trigger an automatic, you know, physical trauma response in the body, um, which can often include nausea and vomiting. Yeah, I didn't see anywhere in the book or anything else I've read where he would have this reaction often. So I don't know if this was a one-time thing or, or maybe it was something that he battled that we just didn't, doesn't talk about very yeah. much. Well, and emetophobia is the fear of vomiting. Right. So that was kind of weird. They said it was a weird variation of that, which, yeah, I don't know. New to me. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it was, it was just a little... This book is very interesting. Again, I'm going to give a, a, another Ed Camper, Conversations with the Killer, The Shocking True Story of the Co-Ed Butcher, you know, this uh, by Derry Matera. He, he did a... Almost like you're... Oh. Uh, <laughs> he did a, a lot of research on it. There's a huge appendix um, in there, and he puts, or she, I'm actually not sure if that's a female or a male name, uh, they put in their kind of comedic spin on the book. So ah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a good read. So Got it. Now that Ed was home, he started to tell the local police all about what he had done, where to find the bodies, and reasons why he did everything. And, of course, his main reason was blaming his mother, his childhood, his siblings, etc., they did find many of the victims, and ultimately on April 30th, 1974, Ed was charged with eight counts of murder. In an odd twist, he asked one of the detectives, Mickey Alufi, if he would be his emergency contact. Ed explained that he had no one else that he could list. He had burned all of his familial bridges and, you know, murdered three members of his family. Detective Alufi agreed, and a month later, Ed did try to kill himself with a sharpened pen in the arm. And I guess he fought the guards off him so successfully that eventually they had to use mace to subdue and treat him. But, you know, it wasn't successful, and eventually his trial started. He pled guilty by reason of insanity, which meant Ed would have his day in court, you know, at the expense of the taxpayer. His lawyer, I guess, was just a really great defense attorney, and he did all he could, pulled out all the lawyer tricks to get Ed off. Um, you know, but again, Ed attempted suicide during the trial, but again, he was saved. Perhaps he was trying to prove he was insane by these attempts. I'm not sure. But the testimony of three psychiatrists found him to be sane, and so ultimately he was convicted on all counts and after five hours of deliberation. This time, the death penalty in California was not legal. It's gone back and forth, um, but at this time it was not legal, so he was sentenced to um, eight seven-year-to-life sentences. He was sent to the California Medical Facility in Vacaville for observation. Courtney, apparently all of his suicide attempts prompted the facility he was originally at, um, you know, during the trial and everything, to send him to this medical facility because it was just too much to deal with. But after he was found sane at this facility, he was shipped off to Folsom Prison, you know, the famous Johnny Cash Prison. 
Um, he did not like this at all. He was not a popular inmate. He was a sex offender and he had killed a 15 year old. So a child killer as well. He spent his first um, and like first two third years in the hole at Folsom. Like it was kind of vague on how much of the first three years he was really in the hole, but probably the majority of it. So Ed would do what he could to prove that he belonged back at the medical facility and that the staff and, you know, doing the stuff he would do and with all of the um, press the case got and all of this other stuff, the staff at Folsom wanted him gone as well. It was just he was just too much to deal with. So between his manipulations and everything, they did eventually ship him back to Vacaville for the remainder of his sentence. Even though he was found sane, he should have done hard time at Folsom or Sam Quinton, but he was able to manipulate himself back into a medical facility. And it also sounds like at this time, Charles Manson was also at that facility. Just something to throw out there, kind of odd. Um, Courtney, I'm, I'm assuming you aren't surprised that Ed was clever enough to get himself transferred to a facility of his liking. He did like a testadero when he was a teen, so perhaps he was actually happy to be in that kind of setting again. I agree. Ed certainly would have known what to do and say in order to convince others that he required mental health care. And he certainly would have been more comfortable in that setting. Um, and just kind of one note on, you know, going back between the health facility versus Folsom and the insanity. Just because you're illegally sane does not necessarily mean that you don't have any sort of mental illnesses that could require treatment. Oh, sure. But, you know, fair is fair. He should have been doing hard time at, in my opinion, at Folsom or at San Quentin. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you that he yeah. deserved, I mean, yeah, so. you know, a lot of punishment. But he, uh, whatever, he did what he had to do, and it got him where he wanted to be. So <laughs> so he did not want to get transferred away from Vacaville, so he was a model prisoner, probably still is a model prisoner there, because he did not want to be sent back to a maximum security prison. He volunteered for any and all psychological testing, and he wanted to get, um, it's, I can't remember what it's called, but it's an experimental surgery they were going to do that was like kind of like in place of lobotomy. But he was turned down for that for, you know, medical reasons or whatever. Um, we do know that he worked with the FBI Behavioral Unit to help them better profile violent offenders. You know, Mindhunter is kind of uh, that book and the show. Ed Kemper played a big part in all of that. Um, he also volunteered for Reading for the Blind. And he recorded a ton of books on tape. So this was back when you used to get like eight tapes or CDs, you know, to listen in a car. It's not like today. Um, he did many, many audiobooks, including Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews and A Star Wars by George Lucas, just to name a couple. And I tried to find any of the many books the author listed on the um, book we just talked about on Audible or, you know, Amazon or whatever, but I couldn't. So I'm assuming they've been re-recorded in this new digital age, but... Um, I was kind of bummed because I just kind of wanted to, to hear how he did that. Right. It would be interesting to yeah. hear like <laughs> yeah. his voice reading a story. I imagine he had a pretty deep voice, and I bet with all that time on your hand, you get creative with his characters, but I don't know. Oh, well. I guess the blind population was very grateful for what Ed did and the other prisoners. Um, they did a lot for them. Uh, he even got trophies for his work with the blind. He had never gotten trophies before, and he claims that they are very special to him. Ed also worked in the education and psychology departments in the prison as a desk clerk. And as I said, he has been a model prisoner. 
And despite that he has been denied parole nine times, he's still eligible in 2024. So next, well, about next year. He's currently 73 years old. And I don't know if you got to take a look at the picture of him now. He looks nothing like he used to. I mean, well, he's gotten old. But I mean, it's like he got rid of his mustache. He got rid of his glasses. Like, I wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to pick him out of a, a lineup, right. <laughs> so to speak. So Right. Although he is still 6'9". Yeah. Still a big dude. Um, so, Courtney, anything you want to say? You know, I think that Ed figured out early that he could live his best life and thrive in the secured psychiatric environment of prison. You know, the structure and rules provide him with the boundaries he needs to manage his anger and anxiety and, of course, prevent him from hurting other people. And the activities available, like working and recording books, etc., you know, they help give him a purpose and a place to focus his intelligent mind that I mentioned could get bored very easily in prison. You know, and so fortunately, I think he and the parole board realize that he needs to be there and that he would not be able to function safely if he ever was released into the public again. Another thing in this book that was speculated by people that were interviewed or um, had references to was that Ed actually dumbed down his IQ and it was speculated that he had an IQ of 180, but he dumbed it down for his tests from 136 to 145 so that he wouldn't present as such a risk of being intelligence. No clue if that's true. That was just something that was um, thought to be true by some people, some experts or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, it's tough. To, <laughs> you, Either way, he's still on that like, oh, sure. You know, yeah. point one percentile. It's either, you know, a Leonard Hofstetter or a Sheldon Cooper level. 145, 180, the Big Bang mm-hmm. reference, sorry. <clears throat> Anyways, um, so that's that's it. That was uh, Ed Kemper. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting in many ways. Um, might be the first one we've had turn himself in. I he think was so. nowhere near being caught. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. like they were on to him. Yeah, I think he may be the first to voluntarily give himself up. And I don't know if he's the first to realize, but one of the first that we know acknowledges publicly that, you know, he was, uh, his mother was not to blame, but the reason possibly for, you know, his issues and needing to kill people and right. uh, very self-aware when he got rid of his mother, he realized that he didn't need to do it anymore. And he decided to face the music in his weird way. And right a perplexing man yeah I think his self-awareness is the most interesting thing about Ed to me Mm -hmm. because not only does he like understand the book learning side of like psychology and and everything but he's very eloquently able to put into words his own experiences Mm -hmm. um, in a way that other serial killers just haven't been able to Right. They might still be in denial. They might just not realize what has occurred. They might not agree with diagnoses that they've got. Like, who knows? Right. Or they may not even understand what's happening in their own mind. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, um, I hope that we taught you guys, or I don't want to say taught, but um, threw out some more options of things you might not have known or whatever with Ed Kemper. Right. Because, yeah, there's a lot on him. Um, I didn't really get into the trial 
because that's just it didn't feel like it was necessary but it sounds like it was an interesting trial there was um his sister pled on his behalf um but in a weird way she would talk about all of the um horrible things he would do in a way to make him look crazy mm-hmm. so she was like trying to help him but doing it in a weird way by like talking mm-hmm. about the horrible things he would do so kind of like opposite of what you think about and um anyways right yeah. so Courtney do you want to uh tell us a little bit about your next case yeah so this next case coming up was my choice um I picked in one that at least that's interesting for me um my sort of clues are that probably most of you have never heard of this person but I think at the end of it all, you'll be hungry for more. Oh, see, I don't know this person. They don't remember the book yet, so that's my homework this week. Um, yeah. It's your social media. It is my okay. social media turn. So if you have anything you want to tell us about Ed Kemper or any guesses for, um, you know, our next killer, killer out there, um, or if you just want to tell us that we're awesome and that you like us or give us suggestions, please feel free to email us at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com or you can send us messages, leave comments like subscribe, et cetera, et cetera, um, on our Instagram at addictedtompodcast or on our YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook thank you. At Addicted to Murder Podcast. It's always a mouthful. Um, but Corey, Courtney, not Corey, Courtney, <laughs> what do you do if a giant of a man in a boat of a car offers you a ride? You go nuts, you go home, and then you go to therapy. That's right. All right, everyone. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.